What's up, guys? This is Pat, and before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder to please hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. All right, here we go. Hey everyone, welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. My name is Posh. I'm Pat. And we are here today with Glenn Sanford. Glenn, thank you for joining us. Glenn is the founder of EXP Realty, the chairman and CEO of its parent company, EXP World Holdings. And most recently, he joined Verbella as the chief strategy officer when they acquired them in 2018. And uh, we're excited to hear his story and how he began and how you know, EXP is now nearly 60,000 agents and growing and things such as real estate and technology and all the things that go into being the founder and the CEO and a chief strategy officer. So Glenn, uh, we're excited to chat with you today. Awesome. Hey, thanks. Thanks, uh, Posh. And thanks, Pat. Hey, yeah. And just, um, you know, a little quick uh, snippet there. We're uh, we're actually just over twenty nine thousand agents. So I, I think you said 60,000. So that's uh, that's next Sorry, year's yeah. number. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. I thought I heard 59 originally, so I rounded it up to 60. But hey, I doubled it for you. That's a new goal for your company. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. So it is what it is. There you go. There you go. Well, we've so, been we've been growing pretty fast. So it's uh, it's not long and we'll, we'll be there. Love it. Glenn, talk to us a little bit about, you know, your early days. Where did where did you grow up? Yeah, so I'm Canadian by birth. I was born north of Edmonton, um, in fact, uh, in a little town called Peace River, Alberta. Technically, um, from time to time, we had to look south to see the northern lights, so that's how far, far north we were, uh, and uh, was there till I was about three, and then we moved to the lower mainland of British Columbia, just outside of, outside of Vancouver, and uh, lived there till I was 13, went to uh, grade school and and those and uh, middle school and then uh, my dad sold his business um, in in uh, was actually a granola manufacturing business that he sold to Kellogg's and uh, we mm. we went and moved to Oklahoma to be in the oil and gas business so um, we I've been all over the place um, and then I guess it's eighty six on I've been pretty much Pacific Northwest based so north of Seattle that's where I've been been living and. Uh, Raised a family, a couple daughters, uh, uh, 24 and 26 now. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, just kind of, kind of just, and then right here on the water, looking out in the ocean. So it's kind of a nice spot to be, uh, uh, sequestered at home. Right. Um, tell us like as a kid, what kind of things you were like into, do you remember sort of, you know, what you like to, to spend your time doing? Was there anything in particular or were you just sort of like a regular kid, just trying a bunch of things? No, well, I was not a regular kid. Um, I remember actually uh, one of my math teachers in, I guess it must have been sixth grade, but he brought a Apple II computer to school in late 1977. And I just, I fell in love with that. That was um, at the time, you know, 48K of RAM. um, And uh, I think the particular machine he had had a cassette tape drive and uh, and then he'd rent it out for twenty five cents an hour for for students to play on. So I bought brought rolls of quarters and just sort of lived on the computer. Um, and and uh, fortunately, around that time, 
uh, my dad was doing fairly well uh, with his business. And so he ended up uh, buying an, an Apple II computer. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, and we, we got the bigger one. We got 64K RAM as opposed to 48K RAM. And uh, I had two five and a quarter inch floppies, a green phosphorus monitor, nine pin dot matrix printer. And uh, I just, uh, I played around on that machine like pretty much day and night. I had a 300 baud modem. So if you remember Matthew Broderick and War Games, I was kind of doing that. I had the the the, uh, the modem uh, dialing sequentially every number that I could possibly find to see if I could find bulletin boards or or different things that were sort of connected to a phone line. Um, didn't find any thermonuclear war games, but uh, but it was uh, it was it, but I was pretty geeky um, and uh, and then continued on you know into uh, into high school. Continued to stay pretty pretty dedicated to sort of tech and and. Uh, that was kind of my thing. I was also a little, I was somewhat athletic. I played soccer. I, uh, I was long distance runner. Um, and, uh, I ended up, um, actually kind of interesting in Oklahoma, went to a really small school, only 50 kids in my graduating class, uh, didn't have a track and field team or a cross country team, which was something that I enjoyed doing in Oklahoma. They don't even know what soccer is. Like that's like a totally foreign subject. Um, and, um, uh, uh, the only people that ran at the uh, in high school were the the basketball players and uh, and and the wrestlers, the wrestlers to cut weight. And so I ended up uh, getting uh, becoming a wrestler my my junior and senior year because they were the only ones that ran long distance. And at the same time, I started up a track team and started up a quasi country cross country team. And and uh, so that's kind of what I what I did. And like. Career-wise, like, you know, after high school, did you, like, envision yourself sort of, I guess, tell us what you did. Like, did you go to college? What did you study? Was was computer programming, computer science um, the the path for you? Or, or were you thinking of other things, too? Yeah, so I was, I was really intrigued with the combination of where computer science and business sort of combined. So before there was an MIS degree, um, you either did computer science in the engineering department or you did you know, business and economics through the business school, and they didn't really sort of combine the two. Um, so I I did take some computer courses uh, in university, and they were kind of my easy A's. I kind of just breezed through those. Um, but uh, ironically, uh, when I graduated from high school, I don't know what exactly I was planning on doing, but uh, the only thing that I was really good at school-wise was uh, uh, my computer class, um, I don't even think I was really great at math. I really didn't apply myself through in, on the math side, uh, but athletics and, uh, and then computers. And so I graduated high school with a 192 and literally had to uh, uh, get in on my SAT and ACT scores, uh, which were at the, at the very top, top one, 2% of, of, uh, of scores. But my, my grade point wasn't there. And, uh, but I ended up going to the university of Oklahoma and, uh, uh, and that was good. I ended up uh, um, going there, and uh, but I was an entrepreneur at heart, uh, which meant that if I saw an idea, I started to pursue it. And in fact, my first business was probably when I was fifteen. I, I started a business called Sandware Software, and it was uh, I was writing a code on a TRS eighty for a garage door company, and I was getting paid in chips and in pop. And uh, um, so I was always really kind of in that that realm of things. And then when I went to university, you know, I ended up either 
uh, chasing girls or doing a little bit of, uh, uh, of work just to make sure that I didn't totally flunk out of school. So you're obviously a big fan of the chase and, you know, being an entrepreneur, you know, you're always chasing, right? You're always chasing for the next big idea. You're chasing for, you know, capital, you're chasing for customers, et cetera, et cetera. I know that, you know, before you even started any of the companies that we've mentioned early on, you did a lot of different things to get to where you are today. So, you know, after you went to college, what was the path for you, right? What, what did you end up doing? Yeah. So, um, I ended up um, bouncing around university wise a little bit. Uh, and I was, when I was 21, I was actually going to school in Phoenix, Arizona to a community college, Phoenix college. And I was managing a bar at night and my dad being kind of a consummate business entrepreneur, uh, he and one of his business partners came to the, uh, to the, to the bar one evening. And I don't think my dad actually thought that that was a real career. So he decided that I should go to Las Vegas to become a stockbroker. So at 21, I, I became a stockbroker in 1987, right after the, the, the collapse, I ended up uh, becoming a stockbroker. And, um, um, and I did that for about six months. Uh, I ended up working for a firm in Las Vegas that was more akin to the movie Boiler Room uh, than, 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 uh, a, a firm that one would be called respectable. And so after about six months, I said, this isn't for me. And, uh, then I went back to school again, um, a little while later, got, i got married and, uh, but I was at the time I was really enjoyed investing. And so I think I was 26, 27 at the time. And so I posted a lot of stock picks onto prodigy and America online and, um, and, and they did really well. And um, uh, AOL actually tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I'd run their financial bulletin boards. So I actually did that for, for, for a while, probably six, seven months. I was managing their Sunday night investment chats and uh, I was uh, managing all their financial bulletin boards. And, and people used to ask me how I knew so much about stocks. And I said, well, I used to be a stockbroker. And I literally had people reach out to me and say, hey, if you ever become a stockbroker again, we'd love to open an account with you. And uh, so I became a stockbroker again. I was going to university, but I ended up uh, uh, becoming a stockbroker. And within uh, just a few months, I had a half million dollars under management, which is a pretty sizable amount back in the early 90s. Uh, and uh, uh, what I found is that when I spent you know four hours a day in the library actually research- researching stocks, I did really well. But um, what ended up happening is as a stockbroker, I ended up spending 10 hours a day talking to people on the phone. So after about six to eight months, I ended up burning out again because my stock picks weren't doing as well as they used to be. And uh, uh, so that was that was one of the things that I did. Another thing that I was really into was uh, network marketing was a big one. I, I ended up being you know an Amway distributor a couple times. I ended up uh, involved with a, another network marketing company called New Ways International. I actually did all the templated websites for, for a bunch of their distributors back in the uh, early 90s. Actually, that was about 97. I built an online service in Western Canada called Interactive Cafe, which ended up being the largest online service in Western Canada. So I was really into sort of the online community side of things. Um, and then uh, in, two, in 1998, 99, I had somebody reach out to me and ask me if I'd write a business plan uh, an, uh, for, for an internet project. And I said, well, I just happened to be thinking about one right now. So I wrote a plan for an e-commerce logistics company. And uh, he was supposed to raise me about a half million dollars. 
ended up raising about 30,000. And, uh, and so I was, uh, had this business plan that actually made a lot of sense. And so I ended up uh, getting it funded, uh, the first round of funding right before the, the dot-com collapse. So um, I got uh, a couple million in. Uh, we needed about 40 million more. And uh, of course, we got kind of chased out just because we needed so much money and everything was collapsing. But we had a, a good set of partners. Uh, in 2002, though, I ended up sort of licking my wounds and uh, said, got my real estate license while I was looking for another project. And it just ended up happening that uh, real estate ended up being that next project. So, so that was uh, kind of what was happening then. And Glenn, how old were you around this time in 2002? I was 35 at the time. So 35. I'm 53 now. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you were bouncing around from all these different like jobs and I'm sure you were doing well in all of them, but along the way, was there anything that stood out to you or anything that you particularly enjoyed that you thought, okay, I can spend my life doing this because, you know, right now I look at myself, you know, I'm 20, almost 28 years old. Uh, and you know, same with Pat and we like a lot of things. We have passions for different things. And a lot of people our age, I think feel the same way. And the world is obviously always changing. And now, you know, with this pandemic, it's changing even more and it's even faster, but there's really nothing that I've grabbed onto and said, I want to go all in on this, right? And I feel like, oh man, I'm almost 30. I should have had it figured out by now. Did you, did you ever feel that way? And you know, how did you overcome that? If so? Yeah. Um, I think for me, I was, I really enjoyed doing interesting things, hoping that it was, it was the one I was looking for, you know, I'd, I'd met a number of people who had, you know, at a fairly young age, it hit home runs. And, uh, and I was kind of wondering why I hadn't had a hit a home run yet because I, I mentally was there. Uh, that's where, that's where my passion was, was into, was to building different, uh, projects and companies and trying to figure out what, what worked and what didn't work. I think when I was, by the time I hit 35, I was, um, you know, I two daughters, I, um, um, married fairly, uh, fairly young, but still needing to actually make money. So for me, you know, I need to put food on, on, on the, uh, uh, um, on the table. And so for me, uh, I really just wanted to make enough money to actually go from where we were at the time, which uh, ironically, if we would have went back a couple of years, I was driving, you know, a nice Chrysler Concorde. I had a lot of, you know, some trappings of success, not huge trappings, but when we moved back to Washington State from from Arizona from my e-shippers days, uh, we ended up having to trade the car in on a on a Geo Metro and an old Ford Focus wagon, and and I was uh, forty thousand dollars more in debt than I was before we ended up starting our previous uh, previous company. So for me, uh, I wanted to just I needed to make some money uh, initially and just make sure that I at least paid the bills. And but what I was passionate about was where technology could really sort of change things relative to the game. And so uh, in, in, the, in the 90s, I'd started a, a, the online service. I started a web design company. I was really, really good at sort of understanding the SEO side of things. And in, in 2002, I had actually been doing um, SEO for a local Realtors website. He was 64, 63 at the time, and I was 35. And he decided that I was going to get my real estate license. Wasn't it wasn't me deciding I was going to get my real estate license? Um, he actually said, "Glenn, you need to go get your real real estate license." 
and and I mentioned to Hugh, I said, Hugh, I don't want to get my real estate license. Nobody makes any money in real estate their first few years in the business. And and he literally said, well, what's it going to take? And I, I go, I don't know, guarantee me three grand a month. And he said, fine. I'm like going, and I'm literally going, oh, crap. I, I, I really didn't want him to say say that he would guarantee me that. And then I said, okay, well, I'm just going to build this business online. I'm not going to do the uh, the the realtor pen at the grocery store. I'm not going to be talking to my friends and family. I'm going to build it online and see they're going to work or it's not. And so this was really kind of around the lead generation side of, of generating leads. And and he said, fine, 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 fine. And then um, and then 30 days later, he asked me why I didn't have my real estate license. And at the time, you could get your real estate license about two weeks. You just cram course online. And I said, well, Hugh, I get paid $60 an hour to do website development work. Um, and uh, so I just haven't done my my uh, my coursework. And he goes, well, I'll pay you $60 an hour. Go get your dar- darn license. So I got paid $60 an hour to study for, I think it was uh, 30 hours or 60 hours. Anyway, um, there was a, quite a number of hours, but he ended up spending three, $4,000 just up front before I was even doing anything in the business just for me to get my real estate license. And so he kind of just decided I was going to be get my get that license. So for me, I was bouncing around. But one of the things that was kind of interesting at that point in time is that somebody had actually invested in me, actually put their money on the line to actually get me in the business. And it kind of changed my mindset a little bit in that I wanted to make sure that, that uh, I created a good return for somebody else's investment. That's always been sort of mentally one of the things that it's a lot of times, if it's my own money, I don't really care if I lose it. You know, it's okay. But if it's somebody else's money, I'm like, I'm dog on bow and I'm going to make sure that I do everything in my power to actually do something with it. So, so for me, that was probably the thing that sort of drew me in and to be really focused and, and have a lot of attention on what I was doing. And because I was so attentive, um, I ended up getting traction in ways that most people in the real estate business never got. So, you know, first, first year, uh, in the business, I was rookie of the year, sold 17 properties to people I met just online. And then, of course, I showed them properties and drove them around once they got to town. But by my fourth full year, I did $60 million in production in real estate, which in, in 2006, I, four, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, 2006, um, that, that was a lot of business. That put me in the probably the top one, um, top 10% of the top 1% in terms of just production volume. And, um, uh, and, and at that point I finally figured out that I had something, I had something that was generating, um, um, seven figures a year in, in total income, uh, after expenses, I was, you know, probably making two, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, wasn't bad for that point in time. I was still under 40. Um, but, uh, but I could see that if I continued to kind of go in that direction, that there could be some real big wins if I could just organize, uh, effectively. You mentioned uh, growing up, you know, you you had this sort of entrepreneurial bug in you. You wanted to be an entrepreneur, and and a lot of the jobs you talk about are very entrepreneurial, like you know, being a stockbroker or selling real estate. You're sort of working for yourself. It's like you want to put in the effort and and build out your clientele, then you'll reap the rewards as if you were like a business owner, obviously. So, but you know, when when you were sort of entering the actually, my question before I get into this was. Um, you, you talk about how your dad was an entrepreneur and he sold his business. Um, how much of seeing him doing, doing what he was doing and being an entrepreneur was an inspiration to you um, growing up? And was that part of the reason why you sort of had this bug in you? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. The, the fact that I saw um, 
when when I was uh, when I was born because I didn't pay that much attention uh, at that point in time. But I, I did remember, you know, at under three years old, we lived in a uh, a single wide manufactured home up in northern Alberta, and um, I remember just you know looking across the grass and there's some train tracks that ran ran the back background. Uh, we we moved. We pulled our home to uh, Abbotsford, British Columbia, and so we lived in the same um, single wide. A manufactured home, but at that point in time, uh, my dad, my uncle, and my uh, my grandpa all ran a honey business. So they used to run bees from Northern California up to Northern Alberta. So in the in the summer it was in Alberta, and in, in the winter it was in California. And um, uh, he ended up uh, they ended up taking about eight nine thousand dollars and putting it into a granola manufacturing plant. And 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 getting into the cereal business partially because of the because honey went into to 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 granola, and over the course of from nineteen seventy one seventy two through nineteen seventy eight, we went from that single wide manufactured home to um, what ended up being at the time the second largest home in British Columbia or in the Lower Mainland of British Columbia, ten thousand square foot home, um, you know two kitchens, a indoor swimming pool, a bunch of, bunch of stuff. And we used to, a lot of people would come over, a lot of friends and those types of things. And so I, I, I saw at the same time, I was sort of paying attention, um, just the way a kid pays attention to the fact that there, I had friends that, that, that their, their, uh, parents went to work, had, had normal jobs, but didn't that, but they struggled. Uh, they, they didn't have sort of the financial wherewithal that we had at that point in, in time. And, and so I really started to develop some, some thoughts and ideas around uh, business ownership versus, versus being an employed individual. And, and again, lots of people can create great, great career paths and actually do as well in a lot of cases better than the self-employed. But I always considered the idea of actually um, taking a, a, a job um, being more risky than being an entrepreneur which is sort of the, the opposite of the way most people think. Most people think that being an entrepreneur is, is the riskier proposition. And uh, I, I've always thought that actually having a job in a, norm, uh, in a traditional sense is the riskier proposition because you'll never really make more than you get in a paycheck. You know, that, that ends up being... So, so mentally, I just was always programmed around this idea that, you know, if I could figure things out, then there would be an upside that would be far outweigh... Um, um, having a, having a normal job, but at the same time, I always was very creative in just the way I looked at business. And so for me, I even if I was broke, pursuing something, the fact that the upside existed, even if I didn't get it, um, was enough to actually make it more enjoyable than than working in a more traditional sense. Lynn, I'm curious, what made you a good salesperson, and what were you doing differently than others to? get you to that level of being in that 0.1% in terms of production uh, volume? Um, was it anything different? Was it something special or was it just, you know, grit and being consistent and persistent? Yeah. Um, well, sales is one of the toughest businesses you can possibly be in. Um, you know, it's uh, um, actually a, a, a now a friend and a mentor um, of mine uh, who I listened to all of his audios back when I was, in my twenties and thirties, a gentleman named Tom Hopkins. He's now in his seventies, but but he and I have actually spent a little time together now. 
Um, but uh, he talked about sales being the uh, lowest paying easy work and the highest paying hard work. And, um, uh, and, and I sucked at sales in the beginning. I, I literally, um, you know, I, I did try to sell Kirby vacuum cleaners, which by the way, I, after about three months, I actually figured out how to sell Kirby vacuum cleaners door to door. And, and that for me was a huge breakthrough. And I, I realized that. Tell, tell us, tell us, tell us what that breakthrough was. Yeah. So the, the breakthrough for me, um, was I, I started to truly believe in the product. That was one. Um, and, uh, and I didn't fight the process. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of people when they enter sales, they just want to just put all the information out there and they just expect that people are going to know what they know as opposed to actually feeding it to them and providing sort of that 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 positive feedback cycle of of showing getting an, an anchor getting agreement and then going on to the next feature or benefit etc and sort of kind of working somebody up the ladder of understanding uh and and i think a lot of salespeople they just come in and they just they just spout off everything they know and expect people are going to buy the product as opposed to really sort of creating a meeting of the minds between you and the person you're talking to and actually having a real conversation. Not much different than what we're doing right here, a, a real conversation where we're getting to know each other, getting to know the, 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 the benefits and, and, then, and then bouncing uh, conversations. But at the same time, recognizing that they've invited you into, your, into their home, uh, most likely recognizing full well that you're there to sell them a vacuum cleaner and they realize that that's how you make your living. And so to a large extent, um, they, they're hoping at some level that you can actually help them buy this fairly expensive piece of hardware that all it does is pull dust out of the carpet, you know? So, um, and, and by the way, a Kirby vacuum cleaner back in, well, this, I was 17 years old, 18 years old at the time. So this would have been, um, 86, 85, four, four, yeah, 84, 85. Um, at that point in time, uh, the Kirby vacuum cleaner was a thousand dollars. So, so, so we're talking about a really expensive piece of hardware and, uh, and, and I could discount it down to 800 and still get paid my full commission, which was $200 on the machine. Um, but, uh, but what ended up happening is, is that as I did more and more demos, became more and more comfortable with the product. And then I actually believed in the product and actually believed that people truly needed to own it. And at that point I could sell Kirby vacuum cleaners very well. But up until that point in time, I couldn't sell the Kirby vacuum cleaner, um, uh, very well. But once I did, that was great. But what ended up happening after that, which was, uh, interesting as well, is that I overheard what my boss paid for the Kirby vacuum cleaner that I was selling for between 800 and a thousand dollars for. And once I found out what he paid for the machine, which was under $200, I couldn't sell another Kirby vacuum cleaner to save my life. So for the next month I was going out on demos, trying to sell a Kirby vacuum cleaner. and I couldn't sell us another single freaking, um, Kirby vacuum cleaner to anybody else. And, and so that was a point in time that I realized that I had to truly be sold myself, um, on anything that I was selling. And if I wasn't sold myself, it didn't even make any sense to try to sell a product or service. Yeah. It's like that, 
sort of realization plus the realization of like when you when you start understanding like margins and and where the where the money's going and coming from and all that kind of stuff and especially as someone who is entrepreneurial it sort of sparks something in you where it's like there's there's this like thin line between who you're working for and you doing it for yourself and and keeping all, or having the control over the, the company and so um I guess going back, one of the questions that I had that was part of my last que- question was when you sort of entered the real estate market, you know, in, 2000, in the early 2000s, it was a certain way. And did you, it sounds like you weren't sort of entering the market to play by the rules. You, you wanted to, uh, you know, bring your own approach to it. And, and you, you were curious about this intersection of technology and, and business. So how did you start uh, approaching real estate like did you did you first have to learn the way things were to then innovate and figure out ways to change things up or or how did you go about it yeah so in 2002 um i you know i had fortunately been working on websites and website design really since probably 1996 uh in fact i um uh right when ncsa mosaic showed up on the scene uh, even prior to that, I was doing stuff on Gopher and Veronica and a lot of the, the old style sort of internet uh, protocols. So I, I really um, enjoyed website design, but I also wanted to, I also was learning about all the traffic building strategies. And so in 2002, when um, I had a website up in the Pacific Northwest, it was called birchbay.net. And uh, the, at the time it was the Chamber of Commerce website. And, um, and, and I, lent them the domain. I was building the website for free. It's sort of a community service kind of activity that I was doing. Uh, the chamber decided to give the website back to me and, and they started their own own website. But I had all this website that had a lot of traffic coming in. And, and so um, when I approached uh, Hugh Brawford to actually uh, advertise on the, on the website, his email bounced initially. And so I actually called him, fixed his email, and he decided that he was going to hire me to work on his website and, and generate him leads, which I did. And and at that time, if you were to go into a real estate office, um, every single sales manager said that the internet's a waste of time. You know, buyers aren't serious. There was a whole bunch of reasons why it didn't make sense to pursue that from their perspective. But that's exactly what I pursued. So uh, I I was generating internet leads, but I was also pursuing uh, a heavy uh, search engine optimization strategy. So um, I, I had at one point in time, six of the top real estate websites in the country, um, city followed by the term real estate, uh, organically on Google and Yahoo and, and a bunch of different websites. And so I was generating um, 99% of all of our business was buyer-based leads. So it wasn't like we were going out and getting listings, which is the pretty still a fairly traditional approach. Go out and get a listing, put a sign on the ground, advertise it, generate some buyers. Hopefully some of those buyers have houses to sell, go out, you know, sort of rinse and repeat. And that's kind of the standard model. For us, we were really all about generating the internet lead. And then the second part of it was something that I figured out really in 2002 as an agent, which was the follow-up process that I developed was, was around actually doing virtual tours for buyers. So I literally, because we had so many people looking from out of area, I, I would looked at, I was driving that Ford Focus wagon I mentioned earlier, um, um, and uh, I was uh, looking in the passenger seat while I was um, thinking about um, showing property to somebody who wasn't there, and I'm going, 
my, my digital camera is there. And I said, why don't I just take photos from a buyer's perspective and just start sending those to the buyer? And, uh, and so I started to do that and I, I was able to quickly create a, um, a photo roll of 30 to 50 photos. I'd go to the office, I'd upload it cause that's where the high speed internet was. I'd send them a link. They'd see all these photos that they didn't see anywhere else. And all of a sudden they were my client. And so it really was this service orientation. Um, so as an agent, uh, I quickly, probably by year two, I developed a, a what, buyer tours. I still own the domain name buyertours.com, but buyer tours was kind of my catchphrase. If you wanted to work with me, I work with buyers. I do property previews. And so that's what I coached all the agents that ended up working with me is this buyer tour system, which was, again, totally right angle to what the industry coached then and to a large extent what the industry coaches now. Um, everything's still very listing centric. And uh, so that was that's what really put us on, on a different path and a different trajectory business wise. Glenn, at what point did you go from being a salesperson and working on getting leads to actually growing the team? and starting to, you know, develop something just bigger than yourself? Yeah, so I, I started a little bit in, so 2002, I, I became an agent. By 2003, uh, I had figured out that I could, I could generate leads in more markets than I could handle personally. And so I started to generate leads in, in some other, other markets and try to refer those out to other agents. But eventually, uh, what I found, and this was in 2004, that if I was actually going to convert those leads to closed transactions, I actually had to actually have agents on my team who were following my follow-up systems. If I gave somebody a referral, uh, a lead in their market, and they were going to have to pay me at that, uh, which is pretty traditional in real estate, a 25% referral, right. a lot of agents would would look at that lead and go, uh, I'm not really excited about working that lead for a 25% referral if I can work my own database and not have to pay any referral. So there was always a bit of the debate in their mind over what leads they would actually pursue, the one they make 100% on or the one that they got to pay a 25% referral on. So we had to actually scale a team um, because we needed to actually control the closings. So we effectively said, all closings are team closings if you want the leads. So we ended up attracting agents to our team saying, Hey, we've got leads and all, all these closings end up being part of this, uh, of the mix. And, and so whether they were working my leads or they were working their own database, they still had to pay the same referrals into the team. And so that, that was sort of the first foray into growing a team. And we started with, uh, with a couple agents in early 2004, we ended up, uh, by 2005, I think I ended up having about four teams at that point. And by 2006, I think we got to five or six teams over 45 agents across uh, uh, five diff- five or six different marketplaces. So we had really scaled quite quickly. Um, and, and I would really move from being in the day-to-day sales to now being more um, mentorship, accountability, and, and, and training. I, at that point, I actually referred to myself as the highest paid assistant in real estate because I, I literally was in there helping anybody who needed help um, and, um, and wanted to just help them, you know, stay on track and keep things moving forward. Um, so as we all know, you know, in 2008, everything, you know, went crashing down. So tell us sort of, uh, your experience at that time, you know, I, as I understand, this is 
pre XP exp realty and you know launching that whole sort of cloud-based service so um how, how what was your experience like at that time yeah well in 2007 i actually started my first real estate brokerage and at that that time it was called buyer tours realty so 2007 we broke out went independent started our own firm and we actually were we'd grown that to uh, effectively um three going on four offices and and um, going into 2008 and then uh, 2008 hit July August and really September uh, of 2008 Lehman Brothers was going down fast uh, we had the mortgage meltdown and basically uh, you know everything was freezing up in, in the economy and so we ended up um, uh, having to uh, actually raise a little bit of money uh, in October, November of 2008, just to get to 2009, we closed down two offices, went to a skeleton crew on, on our, on our, uh, office in Bellingham, Washington. And we actually had to fundamentally ask ourselves if we wanted to continue to stay in real estate, uh, because at that point, real estate was still a very much a bricks and mortar based business. You never, you didn't see anything akin to a virtual real estate company at that point in time. And certainly if you did, it was not at any sort of scale. It might've been just a one-off in one city. But what we looked at in, in April, 2000, 2009, one of the agents that was with me, um, Edie Kazaki, she was, she asked, when do we get our offices back? And it was actually in a meeting in, that we had with a bunch of our, our teams. Uh, and we were in Arizona having this meeting and, and I literally said, um, Edie, we're not going to get our offices back. We have to figure out a way to build a defensible business model that's not dependent on bricks and mortar. And, and I hadn't really sort of articulated it that succinctly up until that point in time. And to some extent, I was just, I was reacting to her in the moment because she was like, she knew she wasn't getting the offices back, but she had to ask. And, and so I just said, hey, we've got to, we've, we've, I just put the, 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 the uh, line in the sand we've got to build this model that doesn't have physical offices attached to it. And, and what we knew about real estate and I'd been involved with it one time, a company called Keller Williams and they're, uh, they're actually a pretty progressive company. They're, you know, they've got 160, 180,000 agents worldwide. uh, And they run what they refer to as an open book company, meaning that anybody can see the financials of any office. And so I, I was on their agent, leadership council before I started my own real estate brokerage. And so I got to see the books and and the biggest single cost to run a real estate brokerage is the bricks and mortar. And the second biggest cost to running real estate brokerage is the staff. And every real estate office in America has the exact same staff. It has a receptionist, has a bookkeeper, potentially a sales manager, um, has um, the um, somebody who fixes the copiers and, and there's probably, you know, a runner or something like that. So you got three, four, five people in every office in America. And, and yet you can't really tell that much difference between one office from one brand to another office with another brand that's either across the street or, or across town. They're virtually identical. So for me, it's like, you know, we're generating all of our own leads anyway. Uh, we don't, you know, the, 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 uh, the location doesn't do anything for us. We've got now high speed internet everywhere including on our cell phones with LTE connections and everything else. And so it, it just made sense that we pursue a model that doesn't really depend on that bricks and mortar component. And so that was really kind of Glenn, that. Just to, Go ahead. Just to interrupt you real quick, 
and it has to do with this. And I've worked in real estate before as well, not as an agent, but more so on the marketing side of things at a firm here in Los Angeles. And one, one thing I always asked myself, and I know Pat and I have discussed this as well, is I never understood why you even need a brick and mortar for a real estate company when you don't have any clients coming into the offices. Your offices are really the homes that you're showing or the homes that you've listed, right? Was it a matter of, of what was the reason why up to that point, bricks and mortars were still around? Was it just because the technology wasn't there yet or was it there and people didn't want to embrace it? I mean, it seems as though it's one of those industries that should have been the first to adopt technology and run away from the rent and, you know, whatever the taxes, if you own the land that you're paying, right? So I'm curious as to the historical reasoning of that before you get into how, you know, you obviously built EXP. Yeah, so, you know, I, I've debated this one uh, internally and externally many times as well, because I quite frankly don't understand why, you know, more companies haven't went to a non-bricks-and-mortar-based model. But I think there's a couple things. One is the average age of a realtor historically has been 54 years old. And up until recently, if I consider myself really the, the like the early adopter at, you know, at 13, 14 years old, 12 years old of technology, uh, I was, I still wasn't bored with technology. I was, I, I sort of adopted it fairly early on, but I, I sometimes refer to myself as the oldest millennial you'll ever meet just because I'm, you know, sort of, I'm still very much geared toward the, you know, tech and, and social and all the other things that take place online. But that's not the, the, the average realtor, the average realtor Real estate's a second or third career for them. Um, they're they they're not really that entrepreneurial. Not even though they are entrepreneurs, they're micro entrepreneurs. They're in their local marketplaces, but they're not geared from a from a technology first perspective. So I I think that's one of the reasons why we're we've seen and will continue to see bricks and mortar based real estate companies exist at some level of scale. Uh, even after you know what takes place here going on with the pandemic, um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of real estate offices leave. You're going to see more agents come to a company like EXP, but you're still going to see you know, the Coldwell Bankers, the Keller Williams, the Remaxes, and and the others are still going to have their physical locations because that's just how they were built and that's just how they're mentally sort of thinking about it. The other part of it is, is that a lot of real estate offices are part of a franchise network. And almost every one of the franchises has a bricks and mortar requirement that's actually part of the franchise agreement. So if you own a Coldwell Banker, you can't be a virtual company. You can't be that with Remax. You can't be that with Keller Williams. Um, so so it's got to be a different brand that's non-franchise based or a brand new type of franchise that sort of allows people to be connected. Right. So yeah, so with all that in mind, you know, 2007, 2008 comes around, like Pat asked, what leads to the eventual launch of EXP and what does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, I'm mentioning, you know, obviously April, 2009, we, we had that meeting in Arizona and, and that really became the, the, the point in time where we started to say, what would be the defensible business model? Why would I, as an agent be willing to leave my physical office where maybe I've got a my own private desk and I've got my, maybe my own own space to work out of. Uh, why would I end up wanting to go to a non bricks and mortar based firm? Well, first and foremost, 
the financials got to make sense. So, you know, in, in traditional real estate, most offices are still uh, a 70-30 split where the, the office gets 30%, the agent gets 70% of their commissions. And, um, you know, some offices cap, some don't. But generally speaking, that's the model. And maybe there's a franchise fee that goes along with that. So for us, we said we've got to be better than that. So we developed an 80-20 model for our agents. The, the other part was uh, we, we said, okay, what are the fastest growing real estate companies that have existed in the real estate space? And, and I mentioned Keller Williams, which really from the, uh, the mid-90s um, up until really the present has been one of the fastest growing real estate companies of all time. And, and it, it grew um, fairly quickly. And what it did is it actually shared part of the local office profit with the agents and brokers who helped the company grow. So that was really a big, um, that was actually one of the reasons why I was at Keller Williams is because that piece actually attracted me because it gave me a way to build an extra stream of income. And as an entrepreneur, I'm like, why would I, why would I go to a company, do my business and not be able to get something else for helping the brokerage grow if, if I can add that as an extra component to my business? So we actually ended up saying, well, if we don't have bricks and mortar expenses, um, could we pay out some, some amount of, of our revenue to our agents and brokers to help us grow? And so we actually developed a pretty unique revenue sharing pr- program that, that all, was very attractive. So we now have agents literally got a few um, that are, they're, some of them are making six figures a month just from helping the company grow. So they're, they're, you know, they're making more than I do uh, in, from, a, from an income perspective. Uh, just because they've helped grow the company, and some of them have you know five, six, eight thousand people that they've actually influenced to join EXP. So we put a sort of a we'll call it, for lack of a better term, an MLM kind of component to actually agents attracting other agents to the brand. And so that really was a, a piece that for me had been appealing at Keller, and I figured that would be appealing for agents if we started a firm. And then the other piece that I really sort of thought about quite a bit was uh, I always wanted to be an equity owner in the companies that I was involved in. And so we, we worked on it in 2009, couldn't quite get it put together at that point in time, just we were too small. But by 2013, we actually became a public company to actually share equity with our agents and brokers. So all of our agents are actually shareholders in, in now, at the time it wasn't, it was trading OTC, but now it's a, we're a NASDAQ listed company. And so our, our goal was to sort of share all these elements to our agents and actually put them into uh, a a mindset that's more akin to a founder, to a, to a, to somebody who actually runs owns a business that actually is growing a business, uh, than a more traditional real estate agent that they just eat what they kill, which is which is fine. You can make a great living, but we actually created a different different path. So we really kind of thought about all the benefits of being virtual and and what benefits we could pass on to our agents, and that really created this huge growth curve. We started with twenty four. 30 agents, well, 24 agents, I think, approximately back in uh, 2009. And now, you know, we have 29,000 um, agents that have signed on in, in all 50 states, most of Canada, UK, and Australia. And, and we're continuing to grow internationally. And so we've just continued to kind of beat on this drum of, of what can we do to make this better for our agents? What technology can we provide to them? And, and we just continued to sort of iterate on the agent value proposition as we've went. And it's been, you know, again, a it's been a rocket ride um, from from those early days when there were just a handful of us, sort of all could fit into one virtual office to to now. Uh, the other other thing that we did back in two thousand nine 
was we said, hey, if agents are going to actually work from home, um, how do we build community? And, and that's probably the one thing that we, we really um, thought a lot about. And we looked at, you know, Facebook at the time, um, uh, some of the quasi-social networks that existed at the, at the time. And, and we said, you know, that, that's fine for, you know, posts and things that have happened or, or what have you, but we need a sense of place. We need some place we can go. So in 2009, we actually went and found um, a virtual world for business, which was actually an avatar-based environment to actually go to the office. So we actually took all of our agents and our staff, and we told everybody to go home, and we're going to actually log in. And we actually did this October 6, 2009, we all showed up in a virtual office as avatars. And, and I told the team, I said, this is either going to work or it's not going to work. And if it doesn't work, we're all going to look for other work. So, um, so that was kind of a, 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 again, another line in the sand of, um, um, you know, let's make this work. Cause if, uh, if it doesn't work, we're not, we're not going to go back to the old way of doing things. And how did it function? Cause like that, I can imagine 2009, that was like a little bit before this whole, wave of like virtual reality and headsets and you know developing virtual worlds and all this kind of stuff so was it like just you know you log in you have an avatar but you're you're chatting like a normal in a normal chat uh chat group and and you can see each other or not see each other like what how did it function yeah no it was a full-on virtual world for business so the, uh, it was ironic in 2008 2007 2008 2009 second life had really created a huge buzz for um, this online um, gaming style community for social networks, and and um, and the the challenge was with with Second Life, and we had looked at Second Life at the time, is that there was no commonality to it. Uh, there was no reason why people would would run into somebody um, and have a conversation with them and have enough in common to want to continue on having a conversation, other than they both have avatars. And, and so what we kind of theorized at the time was that if we had a, a virtual world that was dedicated just to the subject of real estate and actually growing the brokerage, that the synergies and the serendipitous collisions would actually be, be meaningful enough that people would actually get value of going into this virtual world. So uh, at the time, we, had a, uh, uh, we used a platform called Teleplace, which went out of business. A bunch of these companies actually went out of business, but, um, but you had this blockhead and you'd walk around and have boardrooms and, and, and presentation theaters and those types of things. And no room could hold more than about 30, 35 people before the room started to break down because they would, uh, they, the technology just wasn't there at that point. So, you know, if you wanted to have a meeting for, with more than 35 people, then you had to, have, you had to do it in different ways. Um, but we, we would have 30, 35, 40 people would show up and we'd do breakouts into, into different rooms, but we literally had to put like sort of, um, there's too many people in this room, go to a different room. If it was over like 30, 35 people, um, now it's quite a bit different. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Verbella, yeah. but, but, uh, you know, now we will have, you know, 1100 people in a room and, and it'll still, it'll run better than our 30 person room did back in 2009. Yeah. And as far as this whole virtual aspect to real estate goes, you know, whether it's for the agents or for the, the, um, the buyers or the sellers, how do you see it playing out? Like, I understand like internally for the company, like you, you have these rooms where you could, you know, converse or, or whatever it might be. But like, as, as far as the outside world goes, like, do you see it being a situation where, um, that personal, the need for that personal, 
uh, meeting and, and showing around is 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 not going to be as necessary, and it's going to be like you know an agent sitting at home on a, on in a on a virtual headset in a virtual world showing a buyer a virtual you know version of a of a home that looks very real where you're you're both like standing in the home you're showing them around you're answering questions it's it's the same interaction it's just not physical right well right now that's that is in fact taking place um, we we've got uh, a platform that uh, that we use called iSpy360 that literally allows you to co-walk through 3D or fully immersive 360 views of the home and literally walk people through the home almost like it's a, a physical house and, and so the, the real estate agent can, you know, do what real estate agents do. They can go, this is the kitchen. Here's, you know, they can sort of point at objects to some extent and, 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 and uh, paint the picture of the person actually living in or moving into the home. Um, and, and so right now that's, that's actually r- really happening. Um, we have consumers that are uh, touring homes with agents in, in that capacity and, and to some extent even making offers on homes sight unseen um, without ap- actually having stepped in the home. And it, again, all this sort of predicated by, by COVID-19. Um, I think this is temporary. I think that, you know, once we're past this on the other side, I think, I think there's a, a bit of, of interest in people just going and looking at homes on Sundays during an open, just going and touring open houses. And, and I think that's almost a, a pastime that is, is somewhat, what's it, what would it be like to live in this house? And, and so for consumers to be able to continue to have that experience, I think is still a real, a real need um, to sort of imagine where they might live. But it doesn't mean that they won't do a lot of the pre-work and use some of these virtualized tools and put on headsets and do virtual walkthroughs of homes um, as a way to, to, to trim down their list, to, to bring it down to the top three or four prospects. Um, but then when it actually comes time to buy the house, they're going to actually want to walk through the house, smell the grass, the the the, the outdoors, the, the the whether the house is stinky or not, they're going to want to just know stuff before they actually buy the home, and and so the 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 amount of people looking then will probably be very similar to what it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, and I was going to ask you that, so I'm glad I didn't because you already answered it. But I, you know, it it seems as though a lot of things can be done virtually, but at the end of the day, when you make one of the biggest purchases of your life, you know, that being a home, you do kind of want to touch and feel and see it and, you know, walk around the neighborhood and see what the people are like, et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting to see your perspective on that. I'm curious to see, you know, where it goes. But another question that comes to my mind and one that I've thought about ever since, you know, working in real estate was with technology advancing at the rate that it has and, with the information that we have becoming a lot more accessible, things like, you know, Zillow and Redfin making that possible for a potential home buyer or even home seller to know what their home is worth or what a home looks like, et cetera, et cetera. Are we in the future going to need realtors at all? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's 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 two ways to look at it. Is one is will there be a need to buy and sell homes at some point? You know, does home home ownership become so? Uh, does the does uh, the home home ownership become such a rare commodity that it's really we're just sort of renting and moving place to place? And then, what are the rules around that? And does it become sort of its own? Like, does home ownership become a utility, so to speak, um, right. rather than rather than it being um, something of a of a of a wealth 
creation device. And I think if we if we end up there, then I think then the role of a realtor goes um, is really low on 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 the the scale of of, of needs. The I, I think at least for the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years, that homeownership is still a fundamental need for a lot of people where they want to own where they live. They don't want a landlord to potentially kick them out. They don't want to have rents go up and they want to be able to be in a school district or a neighborhood. Um, and, and to a large extent, you know, the, the, the neighborhoods that tend to be better neighborhoods tend to be less rentals and more homeownership and, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's always going to be sort of this have, have not. And I think for the haves, the ones that can uh, do home ownership, they're going to want to work with a professional to help them through the process. Um, you know, the, the average person probably only buys two or three homes during their lifetime. And yet it's a very, it's a fairly straightforward process, but it's also a very complicated process. You have to understand real estate contracts and earnest money and inspections and mortgages and, 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 and closing processes and all, all of that. And since you only do it a few times in your lifetime, you want to be working with somebody who can help you through that process. Now, will the role of a realtor change a bit? Maybe. Maybe will will the compensation to a realtor change? Maybe. But I think you're still going to want that trusted professional to walk you through that whole process uh, because you're you're doing it so few times. It's not like ordering an Uber that once you've done it a couple times and you're going to do it next week that it's not going to change much. Um, so so that's the way I kind of think about it. That that I. I think if we look out 10 years from now, you know, we're still going to see a million plus realtors in the country, um, real estate professionals, um, listing and selling homes. Uh, and, um, but I think what they do will probably change a bit. Um, probably still going to be touring homes with clients, still be going out to homes and uh, going to homes and listing them. But then they'll also have an arsenal of other tools in their in their toolbox, including things like the iBuyer, so Zillow, Open Door, Redfin. Even we have got a platform called Express Offers. There'll be the ability to do an instant sell on your home. So if you don't want to to mess with all the showings and everything else, you can get an instant offer on your home and sell it next week and 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 make your move. So I think there'll be right. you know five, ten, fifteen percent of the market that might go that direction. But Glenn, just to push you a little further, just so, you know, I think, cause I know a lot of people understand real estate and, you know, eventually will either want to be in a position to buy or sell a home. You know, you said, you know, EXP has 29,000 realtors and growing. We have a million plus realtors in the United States, but as somebody like yourself who understands technology and the power of it, why do we need that many realtors? I understand the need for realtors, even as, you know, the landscape changes, but I envision it personally more so as us having real estate advisors who can almost, you know, be behind, be behind the technology as opposed to 29,000 plus million plus people physically having to do the job, right? It might even be a much more lucrative career to be a real estate advisor, you know, backing up that technology as opposed to being a realtor, right? So if that happens, how do you see EXP being positioned to change and adapt to that environment? Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, one of the things I, I think about is that real estate is is local. Um, and uh, when I think about that, um, you know, y- chances are is in, in your neighborhood, you you probably know two or three realtors. Uh, and and you, you've got relationships with these, these individuals. You know that they're active in the market. You see them on a regular basis. And so they've built up a relationship with you as an individual to actually um, be able to 
to help you through the process of whatever it is that you want to do. So I think that's the part where um, I, I'm not sure that that part of the business will get displaced for a percentage of the population. There's the analyticals, and 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 these are the you know the folks, especially people that worked at tech companies and and also in fintech companies. They um, they don't understand why real estate agents have lasted as long as they've lasted. Uh, they they felt that they probably should have been out of business like 10, 15 years ago. And 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 they're just kind of going, why is there still a realtor showing property? Because I can figure out the value of the home. I can do my own comps. I can do all of this data analytic work. Why do I have to actually go through the process of actually working with a real estate agent to, to do this? And why do I have to, quote unquote, pay these, quote unquote, high fees to actually get it done? And so you've got that sort of side of the side that's talking that way, but 80, 90% of consumers are very touchy feely, emotional buyers and sellers of property. So for them engaging with tech to actually deal with the biggest financial transactions of their life for them, it's, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a case of, of trusting or not trusting the, the tech. They need the handholding and, and until, until they have their own, say, let's just say AI that they personally trust to actually help them make decisions and walk them through some of this stuff, which I think that could be hugely disruptive. I think about the personal AI as being the thing that could be could be the game changer, not the AI that's provided by the tech companies that try to disintermediate the real estate agent, but the AI that actually works on behalf of you as a consumer that can actually understand your preferences and doesn't have a bias in favor of of a uh, of a vendor, uh, I think that's where things could change a bit, and I think that's where you know once all that sort of we we'll call it the 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 Zapier of the consumer, where they can sort of plug into whatever they want to plug into, then I think you could have a totally different experience. But whether there'll be enough money to go into it to help the consumer actually achieve that, I I don't know. I that that that's sort of the the one that I'm I'm not sure about. I want to talk about this topic of the, you know, the virtually distributed teams and we talk about Verbella and and sort of we're seeing what's happening now with everyone working from home and they're figuring out a way to, you know, collaborate virtually and get things done. But for you, I guess you're I'm curious to hear your thoughts like where do you see us going, not, maybe not even in real estate but in general as far as the 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 virtual um aspect of just working. Yeah, well, so I'll give you a little little so I mentioned, obviously, we we started using a platform back in 2009, Teleplace. We ended up using another platform um, called, because uh, I don't remember the name of it, um, Immersive Turf was the next, that one. And then, then we went to a product called uh, Avaya Engage. And, and each of these companies effectively went out of business or didn't have, or weren't scaling their product. Um, we ended up finding a, a platform in 2016 called Verbella, and we actually moved our company onto it. We were, at that point, I think we were maybe a thousand agents, so we weren't huge, but we needed a place that we could actually go to work, and so we we ended up uh, moving into this virtual world for work platform, and it's because again it created this sense of place and and it had all the trappings of a physical office, but actually done in a in a campus virtual world um, environment. For us, it gave us tremendous advantages, and we had committed to not going to an office to actually build our company. And, and one of the reasons was we, we had our agents, uh, we said, hey, you're not going to have physical offices to go to. Um, so we actually, as a management team, decided, 
if we're going to ask them not to go in an office, we, we can't go to an office either. So what do we need to do to sort of solve this dilemma? If we're not going to an office, how do we actually get work done in a meaningful way? So for us, the, the virtual world for work really solved that. We ended up scaling in Verbella over 2016 into 2017. And, uh, and I'd been talking to Alex Howland, who's the founder and president of Verbella, this whole time saying, hey, Alex, we'd love to buy your company. We'd love to buy your company. We'd love to buy your company. And it wasn't until late in 2018 that he finally said, okay, I'm in. Let's, so we structured a deal. We rolled them in. And, and the reason why we wanted to do it you know, from, from EXP's perspective was we were, up until that, then just a SaaS customer. We're just paying some monthly fees, but we were over 50% of the revenues that were going to this, this small company, Verbella, just from the fees we were paying. And, and yet we were sort of stuck in a position that what if they go out of business? What if they can't scale fast enough? What if they, somebody comes and buys them? There's all kinds of sort of unknowns for us that we just needed to, to sort of get our heads around. And, and the best way to solve that was to actually buy the company. And then, and then in addition to that, invest in the company for our own use. Now, we, we thought that there'd be other companies that would jump on board the Verbella platform. Uh, and if you had, I think uh, by, you know, January this year, we had about 40 different clients that were using Verbella at some level, Stanford University, Davenport University. Um, we, we had uh, a number of small uh, businesses and other enterprises that were using the platform, um, but nobody at scale. But we, we kept on investing in it um, heavily over 2000, um, 2019 and, and early into, into this year. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, COVID hit. And um, we were actually on vacation, um, uh, Debbie, uh, Byrie, and I, and we were we were in Australia. We'd actually we'd went to to uh, North Carolina, um, did an event. We actually rang the bell at Nasdaq the end of January. Went to the Super Bowl in in Miami. Flew to Hawaii uh, like February sixth or something like that, and then um, and then went to Australia, and and we were doing six weeks in Australia while the uh, coronavirus is like basically wreaking havoc around the world. And, and we're, we're, we're getting kind of nervous. In fact, we moved our flight up coming back home only by two days, but like, it was like from, from March 16th to March 14th, you know, we've, we've got countries like canceling flights in and out of the U S you know, people are getting quarantined for 14 days coming in from some countries. We're like going, we just gonna need to get freaking back. And at the same time, we knew that this was going to be a great opportunity for Verbella. So we get back. So I think 14th was a Saturday. And on Monday, I, I, I go, okay, I'm going to go work with the Verbella team. So I, I just started jumping in there. And I, I'm like going, we, we've got people showing up on campus, um, a, a fair number. But we decided, hey, let's start putting, putting the word out that this solves this big challenge of remote work. And quickly, we went from um, from 40 clients to now we've got probably over 300 clients now using the platform. I mean, some some big companies too, like uh, you know we've got Deloitte um, uh, in in the UK and Australia that's that's heavily sort of using the platform, really pushing it out there. We've got some other other big customers, a lot of them that we, we're currently under NDA with, that have sort of said, "Hey, how do we use this? Like EXP use this uh, platform because we get it now." We understand that if we can't go to the office, we got to create. We have to create some sense of place for people to actually work from. And so it's been like really kind of um, nuts the amount of inbounds of people now going. After the pandemic's done, I'm getting rid of leases. We had one company um, uh, that actually wrote on our 
uh, internal intranet said before before COVID-19, we didn't know that we even wanted to use a solution like this. Now that we've actually used a solution like this, we're not even going to renew our leases in, in, and they're in a number of different countries. Um, and so they're starting to see the power of the paradigm of actually working in this fully remote fashion. Explain to us how it works on the for the end consumer, because I would imagine a lot of people when they think about a virtual, you know, platform, they they think you know wearing a big headset and being immersed in this world, which obviously is the case. But is there more to it than that? Are there other ways that people are sort of getting into this virtual space uh, and able to work together? Yeah, in fact, the, the, uh, ironically, the um, the we do have the ability to put on headsets. So we do, we, we, we interface with both the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive um, and, and maybe some other headsets as well. But 99% of the use case is actually using it as a, like you would play any sort of normal, um, you know, first person shooter game. You're, you've got it on your screen, you're looking at your screen, you're, you're, you're looking around um, and, and, and instead you're, you're using, laser pointers versus shooting a gun and you're going to a, to a room with a desk and sitting at a table and you're projecting your PowerPoint up onto a, uh, a screen at the end of the room. And, and then you're doing, you know, having your conversations uh, with everybody else who's in the room. It's, it's all, you know, it's all 360 uh, audio. So you literally, it's all based on proximity. So people who are sitting close to you, you can hear much better than people away from you. And so it's got all these trappings of a, what, what physically you would expect to, to have happen. We're just doing it in this virtual office. So um, up until, I, I think I've only put on the headset maybe three times to go in the virtual office. And after about 15 minutes, I'm done. Like I, I just can't use the headset. And But it's really, that's not really the best use case for it. The best use case is having it up on your computer in a window, um, and, and you you sitting in your in your office inside of maybe a, a team suite or somewhere on campus, people walking by, seeing that you're there, coming in and saying, "Hey, Glenn, how, how's it going?" Or you know, or and and uh, or just doing the random check-ins that you would have happen in a physical office, and and you just have it sort of there and available for people to to have those random um, um, conversations. That's awesome. I'm curious, Glenn. So you're obviously you know a public company CEO. Uh, which is a very different type of CEO. I mean, you have to operate completely differently. There's things that you can and can't say, right, and things that you can and can't do. Um, how has that experience been like in, you know, acquiring uh, Verbella? What t- what type of effect did that have on, you know, the overall company, you know, EXP World Holdings? And, you know, how is it like dealing with shareholders and board members, et cetera, et cetera? Talk to us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so um, yeah, obviously, being a public company does add uh, some elements that are um, necessary because you're now dealing with with shareholders that are quote unquote the public. So, so there's a there's certainly an element of you're no longer if you make some bad decisions, it could get scrutinized pretty significantly in a negative context. Where if you're a, a private company using your own money and you, you go and try something harebrained, well, who cares? It's your money. And so you have to, you do have to think about, you know, what are you, uh, investing in? What, why are you investing in that? Um, but you can also, you know, let people know that you're going to use a certain amount of your money for R and D and trying crazy ideas. So you just have to be transparent. Investors just need to know 
uh, whatever it is that they, they should know based on what the company is doing. Now, one of the things we, we've chosen not to do is to provide uh, earnings guidance or revenue guidance. So we're actually pretty low-key in terms of actually what we share publicly. So we're not saying, you know, we're going to generate X amount of income next quarter, this year, what have you. Um, so we're pretty tight-lipped on that. Uh, I think we always were, so that hasn't really changed that much. But you know, there is, you know, we have an in, some independent board members. They they run an indep- we have an independent audit committee. We've got uh, our we've got auditors that actually look at the books every year, um, and and they then sort of judge it for material weaknesses and other other challenges that that a company might have. But I've to some extent stayed fairly true to my vision of being an entrepreneur. Even though we're now a big company, you know, the last trailing 12 months, we've done over a billion dollars in revenue. So some big numbers. Um, and, uh, and yet at the same time, uh, building a really great team has allowed me personally to, to work in the areas that I, I can add the most value without feeling like I'm, I'm overly oppressed by the quote unquote public company. And how much time do you spend on Verbella versus uh, EXP? So at this point, I'm spending about 80, 85% of my time on Verbella. So that's since really mid-March. Um, prior to that, I was probably 70% on EXP and, uh, and 30% on, on, uh, on Verbella, if, if that. Uh, but with everything going on, I've made this really hard shift and wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to do it without the right team. So I guess, you know, one of the things is, you know, as we've scaled and probably this, you know, from a, from a founder perspective, um, finding the right team is absolutely critical if you want to have, you know, retain some level of freedom as, as a founder. Cause if you end up doing everything, then you don't have any freedom. Completely agree. Um, I want to sort of end up, end with this, you know, given the current situation that we're in people in every industry, you're seeing all these shakeups, you're seeing every, the whole world change. So what's something that you're personally excited about, you know, in the coming years, 10 years, maybe outside of what you're doing now, is there anything that you're really sort of bullish on or just excited about seeing it come to fruition? Yeah. So I think for me, um, I'm I'm still looking for the uh, uh, the flying car, so you know that that for me, you know, when we can get the flying car, I, then I know we've made it. The Jetsons is here. Um, it, you know, I I'm I'm still really bullish on all all the things you know from a technology perspective uh, that you know your load can be lightened. I, I think that the AI is going to take a huge role in our lives over the next. Uh, next 10 years, we're, we're already seeing it, even though sometimes we don't really know how much it's actually impacting us. But, you know, we, we get on our phones and Siri and, and, and Google and everybody else is trying to figure out what are you trying to say in this message? What are you trying, you know, who should you be contacting? What should you be paying attention to that maybe you haven't paid attention to today? So I see, you know, this emergence of the AI, but I, but I, I think we're going to hit some point, um, Maybe the singularity that Ray Kurzweil talks about, where the AI becomes more powerful than what we and the AI can do to do together. That the AI will actually make our lives totally um, pleasurable because it will ultimately solve a lot of things in real time that we right now have to be very much in the problem-solving mode around. 
so I think that there's going to be um, some element that, that that's going to play a major role from a technology perspective for a lot of people, especially those work, that work in knowledge-based businesses. I think there's still you know, agriculture and manufacturing and some other things that the you know, AI may or may not be able to do as much in. But from a technology perspective and making a lot of the day-to-day decisions that we make as human beings, I, I think that that's going to be probably one of the biggest um, uh, impactful things that's going to happen to us in the next you know, 10, 10 years or so. Uh, excited about it at some level. Also, I'm I'm scared shitless about it too because I, I you know you've um, you've got a lot of AIs now that are getting really good. If you've look, listened to like Google Duplex and and uh, uh, and you've sort of looked at some of these things that are being created uh, online, the, the the fake deep fake videos and all those types of things. I mean, it's going to be pretty easy for people to be impersonated by an AI and for others not to know who you are. So I think that's going to play into you know where where the role of blockchain, you know, the ability to sort of prove up, you know, the authenticity of 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 you as a human being. I think blockchain is going to play a real role in in that authentication and and then exchange of value. So I'm a big crypto, you know, guy. I've been, you know, involved in 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 various different projects over over time, built my own um uh, Bitcoin money game, uh, sort of a little little project I did back in 2014, 15, which I thought was you know kind of fun. But I I think that there's just be a lot of things that we'll be able to do with crypto that's going to change the game as well. So exchange of value in a lot of different different things that happen. I think uh, I think that's another one that's 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 a big one. Glenn, do you know who Satoshi is? Uh, it, it's I think it's that David guy. He he, he claimed he was. Uh, I I have no idea, but uh, um, yeah. There's a yeah, I and I don't. I, I forget uh, David Wright or something 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 Wright. I think was oh. his name, and he was claiming at one point that he was uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamura. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be all really exciting to see, and and a lot of these things you mentioned. If I'm not mistaken, I might have read about EXP in Peter Diamandis's book. Uh, the future is faster than you think. I don't know if, yep. Did you know that, or have you read uh, it? Yeah, yeah. Con- I think Convergence. I think he he was writing uh, in uh, I think the book Convergence, and then uh, actually I just did a uh, talk with him two weeks ago, um, and uh, he's a really big fan of Verbella. So he's he's uh, he's basically saying, hey, for those of you who haven't tried it out, you know, definitely check it out. It's a it's a place where you can actually set up your organization and actually work with people and Singularity University and multiple parts of the world. We've done you know m- numerous interviews with that technology. And Glenn, I know a lot of people that are tuning in are going to want to know, and I don't know how much you can tell us, but you know, considering all that's going on in the world right now, and especially in the United States, and uh, you know, it's obviously had some sort of impact on the economy in terms of unemployment. The stock market hasn't, you know, really changed way too much. I mean, we still have a little bit of a decrease. Uh, by the time we release this podcast, God knows what's going to happen. Every day things are changing. But where do you see the real estate market in terms of residential real estate? What do you see it looking like in the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months? Uh, and I don't know if you can go as far as giving people advice on what to do. But if you can, we'd love to hear uh, your perspective on that. Yeah, it's um, – well. We've got a couple things working in our favor. Um, obviously, 30, 30 million or, or, or the you know unemployment you know getting close to uh, 
uh, you know, the largest number, I think, since World War II or the Great Depression, I think, in terms of unemployment. Yeah. So uh, what I think, one is a lot of the people that are unemployed should, you know, once, you know, companies can go back to their physical spaces, I think a lot of those people are going to be hired back on fairly quickly. So I think we've got some some positive pieces there. I think that low interest rates, I'm, I'm holding out for sub uh, 3% interest rates to do a refinance. So, you know, if I can get, if I can get a refinance done at, you know, 2.9 anything, I'm, I'm like going to be like, that's going to be a really good day. But that also powers, uh, the, the payment buyer, like almost everybody who's, who buys property, um, uses a mortgage and, and the, the lower the mortgage payment is relative to the size of the house, uh, the more house they can buy. And, and, um, and so I think there's still, uh, I think that's going to put, um, some upward pressure on on pricing, even though at the same time, we're going to probably have a, a slower housing market and probably more inventory on the market for some period of time while everybody's getting back to work. So hopefully, you know, we look we could look back six months from now, nine months from now, twelve months from now, and we're back to relatively full employment. Um, and and so that does mean that in the short run, we're going to have some sort of dip, which we're already seeing. You know, 15, 20 percent um, uh, decrease in real estate transactions probably by the end of the year. We're down in, across the board. I think we're down like 30 percent, you know, versus what where we expected we wanted to be like for the month of April and probably May. Um, but we're not seeing as as down um, a trajectory as we were potentially thinking about back in February and March. We were thinking that we might have been gone to 25 percent of the sales volume in real estate, and it certainly has not been that bad. But if I if I think about right now, uh, if you can get a mortgage, and as, assuming that you're a mortgage buyer, if you're a cash buyer, different animal. But if you're if you're going to be buying, I think that being able to snag a low interest rate is, and being able to find the home that you would can see yourself living in for the next five, seven, ten years. I think it's it really becomes somewhat of a no brainer if you can if you can get into it. And obviously, we've got credit scores are a little bit higher uh, that that are needed for for most mortgages. So there's some things working against us. But if you can get into a home, and I would say in the next two, three, four months, um, you could be seeing some bargains that you wouldn't see, uh, you won't see a year, year and a half from now. So really take advantage of 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 that. Uh, and uh, and there's people that are going to need to sell second homes, third homes because they're not going to want to travel. They're they're not going to want to travel across the country. So a lot of those second and third homes, I think, are going to come on the market as as potential properties for people to to pick up. And and some of those are in pretty nice locations as well. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. But I'm not fundamentally scared of of the house. What's going to happen in the housing market? I think it's just a matter of. Of a reset, we saw a big reset in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand seven. Really, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, but two thousand eight especially. Uh, I think we'll go through the reset. Maybe we go out another year, and then and then we're back to whatever the new normal is. And then it's just uh, again, we'll just continue to see things continually improve as long as the economy um, doesn't doesn't take a huge hit. Well, Glenn, you know we appreciate you hanging out with us, and I'm sure we could sit down and talk for hours, but we won't you know, keep going and hopefully we'll save a conversation for a later date and see where you're at and where EXP and Verbella are at and how, you know, once this pandemic is over, how all those things 
kind of uh, end up and where they go. So best of luck with all you're doing. And thank you for taking the time to share your experiences and your knowledge and your wisdom with, you know, both of us, but also, you know, the thousands of people that listen to us as well. So uh, thank you again. And uh, we hope to, you know, chat with you again soon. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Posh. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. I really appreciate you having me on the uh, podcast. Thanks, Glenn. Likewise. Thanks, Glenn.